Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. And hello and welcome to From the Diamond. I am Grant McCauley. This is Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, live from the Kia Studios on a Sunday morning as we get prepared for the Braves wrapping up a weekend series against the Arizona Diamondbacks and putting the finishing touches on a road trip that, as we're going to talk about, is probably not going exactly the way that they planned, but a chance to salvage things before they come home, get an off day on Monday, and then welcome the New York Mets to town. So lots to talk about on this particular edition of the show, as there are always many things to talk about for the week that was for the Atlanta Braves. That's what we're going to start with. But before we do, I want to remind you to follow along on social media. You can find me on Twitter, as always, at Grant McCauley. Also on Instagram, at Grant McCauley, the show is at from the diamond with an underscore in the end on Twitter at from the diamond on Instagram and of course if you're tuning into the show if you're familiar with it or if this is your first time it's also available everywhere you get your podcast and on the Odyssey app and if you need links to anything check out from the diamond.com got you all covered there on that top navigational bar uh, as we've talked about many many times the Atlanta Braves are looking to kind of get themselves on track a bit now that might seem like a weird thing to say about a first place club and a team that for most of this year has had one of, if not the biggest, divisional leads in baseball. And that's been trimmed down just a little bit, as we expected it to, because you know, getting off to a hot start doesn't necessarily mean you're going to win the division. Uh, go ahead and check back to where we were a year ago, where the Braves moved into the month of June, ten and a half games out of first place. This is a much better place to be. We can talk about the struggles of this club. We can talk about some of the needs of this club, of which there are a few. But you have to kind of keep the big-picture perspective, and that, I think, is what the Braves have done really well as a team, as a group throughout is figure out a way to not let the lows overtake the highs and put them into any kind of tailspin. That, I think, is a sign of a winning club. But they've had to overcome some injuries. They're having to overcome some inconsistency, particularly on the offensive side of things, because you have to explain to yourself and to, I think, a portion of the fan base at the very least, how do you go out to Oakland and lose two out of three to that team? Because they're not particularly good, the Oakland Athletics. But as the game is not played on paper, which is something we just kind of say as a throwaway statement and spring training about you know, projections and this and that and the other. Well, there's going to be a series, a game, certain plays, whatever it may be, where you're just going to have baseball happen. And that means you're going to lose some games. You're not supposed to. Also, over the course of the season, as we like to talk about, you win some games. You're not supposed to because you just find that comeback. You get those runs. You find that rally. You record those final three outs. You don't give the other team a chance to come back and beat you. They're pretty still a little bit of that, too. So it kind of all evens out in the wash. But if you're a better team than not, you're going to find a way to win more games than not. And the Braves, coming into Sunday, find themselves 10 games over 500 in first place in the National League East, which is where they want to be, kind of controlling their own destiny as we move into the summer months, ahead toward the All-Star break, the trade deadline. Before we get to any of those things, it's a little bit of a, a time of the year I think we refer to as the dog days of summer. And it becomes very difficult to get through some of those because of exactly the kind of things I think the Braves had to deal with in May. The dog days weren't supposed to show up in May. They're supposed to show up a little bit later as the weather gets a little bit hotter. That's kind of one of the things I think that makes them the dog days as well. 
But I will say the Braves, especially if you look at the last two years, 2021, clearly a lot had to happen at the trade deadline and some things got figured out there. But even in 2022, this was the time they went on a 14-game winning streak last year to really turn their season around. So the Braves, as the year goes on, just seem to find a way to get a little bit hotter. But it does not take the edge off of losing to a club like the Oakland Athletics, who had dropped 11 in a row before beating the Braves on Monday, which, by the way, was a rather significant day for one Brave in particular. And I speak of Michael Soroka, and we're going to be talking about his comeback story and his opportunity to get back in this Braves rotation after nearly three years as the show goes on. That is a definite highlight from this year. I know that the outcome was not what he wanted in terms of wins and losses, but there was a lot to, I think, take out of that that gives you some promise and gives you something to look forward to as the Braves try to patchwork their rotation together. And that's something that we seem to talk about every single week. You know, Max Fried is not walking through that door next week, and neither is Kyle Wright. So you got to figure some things out. The return of Michael Soroka, a huge storyline for the Braves and potentially a huge net positive for this pitching staff because, let's face it, they need some reinforcements right now. They've gotten a lot out of Bryce Elder. And they're getting, I think, enough out of Jared Schuster. That's behind Spencer Strider and Charlie Morton. But you still want to be able to help your bullpen out because that's a group that has been heavily taxed. And we'll get into that a little bit as the show goes along as well. But to go back to that Oakland A series, you know, you drop that first one. The team snaps their 11-game losing streak. You figured, uh, common sense logic said the Oakland A's were going to win another game this year before it was all said and done, you know, walking into that series. But you would like them to maybe just take the one. Take the one and be happy with it. Get the two out of three, move out of town. The next day, though, the Braves couldn't get the offense going. They let the A's hang around, and then an untimely ninth inning rally in which Rice and Iglesias didn't have it, and Austin Riley was unable to handle the play. It allowed the Oakland A's to kind of steal a win, I felt like, on that day. And you can lay that one at the feet of the offense as much as anything because Bryce Elder pitched great. You know, and Rice and Iglesias is not going to be perfect every time, but I think if you hand him a two- or three-run lead, you're going to feel pretty good about that more days than, than not. But – that was not the case on that one. So as we wax poetic and kind of recap some losses that I think a lot of Braves fans would like to just put out of sight, out of mind, and forget all about, I think the word that I would phrase that whole trip to Oakland with, or that I would categorize it under, is forgettable. It was a very forgettable series. A little bit of that offensive lull that the Braves have been dealing with followed them into Arizona on Friday night, a 3-2 loss. Eddie Rosario, a couple of solo home runs, but the Braves, Unable to find any other offense. They had a ninth-inning rally going, but a great defensive play by the Diamondbacks and Lourdes Goriel robbing an extra base hit from Travis Darnot. That kept them ahead, and Miguel Castro was able to wriggle off the hook, and the Braves were unable to cash in their chance with runners on the corners, only one out in that inning to uh, come up on the wrong end of another loss. Just a frustrating night of baseball, but they got right on Saturday. Ronald Acuna Jr. was doing Ronald Acuna Jr. things. We love talking about that. Had a tape measure home run, 464 feet. That's his 12th of the year. Also stole his National League leading 24th base of the year and scored his National League leading 50th run of the year. A few things going for the Braves lets me know when uh, it's a good night at the ballpark. A Ronald Acuna Jr. home run and a couple of runs scored usually goes a long way towards telling you that the offense is clicking and doing the things it needs to do, and that was the case last night. And Spencer Strider, I thought, uh, tossed a pretty good game himself and Picked up a win as a result. Braves bullpen, thanks to some very clutch relief from Jesse Chavez, who was able to dig down and find a couple of big strikeouts. And I think having seen the way that things went in the month of May, where you polished off a 15-14 and record, yeah, I'll stipulate it was a pretty challenging schedule, but there are going to be challenges ahead on the schedules. We move into June as well. One of them is going to be going head-to-head with this Diamondbacks team that is one of the best in the National League. 
And you got the division rival Mets rolling into Truist Park on Tuesday to start a three-game series. So there's going to be a lot of things going on uh, as we move into the month of June, and the Braves are going to really need to just kind of find some consistency, and particularly it's got to be in the offensive category. I think that's the one thing. I mean, as much as we can complain and, you know, kind of wring our hands over, well, the bullpen gave one up. Well, when they're not having very much to work with on some nights, it's going to make it even more challenging. When they had to go through that string of needing to toss those bullpen games or the Braves choosing to do that because they had some off days and thought that they would try that strategy, it might have paid off a couple of times, but I don't feel like the offense really gave them enough to work with. If the Braves can get themselves back into being the offense that I think we know they're capable of, you get Matt Olson going behind Ronald Acuna Jr. Austin Riley swinging the bat really well. Sean Murphy has been tremendous this year. Travis Darno's back off the I.L., Eddie Rosario and Marcelo Zuna look like they're swinging a pretty good bat right now. Ozzy Albies has had his moments here, and, of course, Orlando Arcia is capable of chipping in. And then there's this guy down at the bottom that we're going to talk about a little bit later in the show, and his name's Michael Harris II. And it's crazy to think that we here we are a year later after this guy has won Rookie of the Year, uh, nearly had a 2020 season last year. I think he's going to be a contender for a gold glove just about every year because of the quality defense that he brings. Uh, but... He's not been able to get himself on track offensively, but I saw a lot over the past, I feel like, week to week and a half, but particularly on Saturday with four hard-hit balls, 95 miles an hour or up, but only one hit to show for it because of a great diving play, some well-positioned defenders for Arizona. But if he keeps hitting the ball that hard, particularly up the middle and to the left side and into the outfield, he's going to start finding not only base hits, but extra base hits. And I think some of those balls are going to start climbing and end up over the left field wall as well. And that, I thought, was something that was so great about Michael's approach a year ago was that he did have power gap to gap. He would use the off-field, but here early in the season, and I feel like a lot of it is just kind of the start-stop of ending up on the injured list for a little while, it just didn't seem like he was right where he wanted to be. But the work continues, that is for sure. So that's kind of what was going on for the Braves on this road trip, and clearly they've got Sunday ahead of them. They're going to send Michael Soroka to the mound again, and again, that's a huge story. We're excited to be able to say that Michael Soroka is on the mound for the Atlanta Braves, twice in one week. That's pretty tremendous after waiting nearly three years. Uh, also on this show, I'm going to have Alex Fast of Pitcher List. He's going to join me a little bit later this hour so we can talk about a couple of Braves in particular. And Soroka's one of them. And Bryce Elder's the other. And what they have done to either be successful in the case of Elder, kind of coming not out of nowhere because we saw him last year be effective, but to do the things that he's doing as a major league's ERA leader, I don't think any of us had that in mind. I know I didn't when I was up in Gwinnett watching him pitch for the Stripers on opening night for the Braves AAA affiliate. Didn't know that it would be Bryce Elder, MLB ERA leader, heading into the month of June, but that's where we find ourselves. How's he doing it? Alex Fast is going to help me break that down. Also, we know how good Michael Soroka was before the injury. We know how good he's capable of being. The stuff seemed to be there on Monday. He seems to feel like the, the pieces are in place. What does he need to do to get back to that form, and heck, how big could that be? For the Atlanta Braves. We'll talk a little bit about that. And then I've got Anthony Castrovens of MLB.com. He's going to join me for a little discussion that I think we're all having in some circles of uh, the Braves you know, country or Braves fandom. If we're talking about the best player in baseball, how are we not saying Ronald Acuna Jr. has a pretty good stake on that? And maybe there needs to be a subcategory, and I'll get into this with Anthony Castrovens, I promise, of, well, here's Shohei Otani. We're going to put him over here. Everybody knows what he is and what he does. It's unbelievable. We haven't seen it in our lifetimes. We may never see it again. So there's Shohei Otani. But when you do talk about maybe the best offensive player in baseball, Ronald Lacuna Jr. has a huge, I think, claim to stake on that. Aaron Judge is in this conversation as well, but Anthony's going to join me to kind of talk about the first couple of months of the MLB season, what we've seen, you know, how he's liking the pace of play, among other things. And, 
doesn't need to be anything we ruminate over every single week. I think we've all kind of uh, taken or will take the time that we're getting back from that. But what if these other rules changes, man? We'll get a little bit on that. And maybe some of the surprising divisional races across baseball. I'll get a little bit of everything as Anthony Castrovince of MLB.com joins me a little bit later on. Again, the Braves are wrapping up their series in Arizona, and we are just getting started here on From the Diamond. When we come back, we're going to dive into Michael Soroka's return, what to make of it, what to make of this kind of up-and-down month of May for the Atlanta Braves, the offense. We're going to get into all of it. It's all coming your way next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now back to more Graham McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back in to From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios on a Sunday morning. A little bit later this afternoon, it'll be Braves and Diamondbacks wrapping up their series. If you're listening on the podcast, and you'll know the outcome of that. It's not a spoiler. It's not a prediction. It's just a statement. So check it out wherever you get your podcasts or on the Odyssey app. Let's talk about the week that was for the Atlanta Braves a little bit more because I went through, I think, in painstaking detail how unfortunate and unfun it is to lose two out of three to the Oakland Athletics. That was not part of the Braves' plan when they left Atlanta. It wasn't on the itinerary, but it's a thing that happened. Now they need to go into Arizona and try to take a series from the Diamondbacks. And on the mound on Sunday is one of, if not the best Braves stories that you will find in the 2023 season. I would categorize this up there with making another deep run through October, uh, obviously there's a lot of awards that can be won. Those kinds of things are great, and we hope that they happen and they're still all out there in front of you. But for Michael Soroka, I don't think any day has been taken for granted over the past three years. And I know certainly by the time that he got on the mound again last year in the minor leagues and began working his way back towards the start that happened on Monday in Oakland, it wasn't about the final score. It was about proving that you could get back to the major leagues and be an effective pitcher. And I think he showed those things. And I also think He has a lot that he can still show the Atlanta Braves as we go forward. But, you know, it had been 1,029 days since Michael Soroka last started for the Braves. We all know the story. August the 3rd, 2020, in front of cardboard cutouts at an empty Truist Park, Michael Soroka went to dart off the mound to field a ground ball and blew out his Achilles, and that was the first of the two times. The next time, nearly, what, almost a year later, he's walking into the ballpark. It happens again. And he has to go through the whole process. So when you talk about overcoming the frustrations and the mental anguish that has to come with that, because as we all know, you know, there's no bargaining to be done. Once the injury happens, it's happened. And then the work happens. That's what, that's all you're left with is the work to get yourself back. And you're going to need to physically and mentally rise to that challenge and all of the challenges it throws at you day after day after day to accomplish this goal. When I talked to Michael back in, uh, spring training, he said, look, I feel like the, the the price that I'm paying to get back, I mean, physically, mentally on this comeback trail, he means, you know, I would pay it over again because I believe I can get back and be the pitcher that I was and the pitcher that I believe that I still am. And I think he was able to show some of that on Monday against the Oakland Athletics. Uh, really, even though the Braves didn't win the game and Soroka wasn't perfect, and I don't think that was the expectation, he got into one little bad sequence of about, what, six or seven pitches one in particular that snuck over the right field wall, a changeup to Ryan Noda, the three-run homer that kind of turned that game around. I'm not going to tell you that giving up a home run is not the outcome that he wanted. It clearly was not. But I will also say that, you know, this stuff-wise, mechanics, I know he adjusted those a little bit, and he looked a little bit different. But the pitch mix was there, and I think that he's going to get a little bit sharper. It's just going to take some reps, uh, really. So fastball topping out at 96. He was also throwing his sinker. Had his slider, had his changeup. They all really had their moments. And I am going to talk to Alex Fast 
of PitcherList a little bit later about this. He's got some really fascinating insights. And if you haven't checked out PitcherList.com, I encourage you to do so. You'll hear more about it later. But you want to get some profiles on pitchers and how they use their mix and what makes them effective, that pitcher list is a great place to go do that. And he's going to give me some insight on Michael Soroka. But I don't know that there's any better place to hear about Michael Soroka's feelings and Michael Soroka's takeaways from that start on Monday than from the man himself. Here's Michael talking to reporters, courtesy of Bally Sports, and uh, just kind of wrapping up what was, I'm sure, an emotional day for him as he made his first start in nearly three years on Monday in Oakland. Listen to Mike. You know, getting back out there and, and feeling the adrenaline, seeing some of my best friends behind me, and, uh, you know, I had a lot of fun out there. Obviously, that one inning, uh, you could do it again. You might do it a little differently, but that's not baseball. Just got back out there and started making pitches again, and glad that I bounced back and uh, still went out there for the sixth and threw another clean, clean inning out there. So it was good all in all. Just, yeah, a couple of bad pitches here and there in the fifth. They made me pay. When you're warming up and then you get back out there for the first time again, like what sorts of emotions are even going through your head and how do you try to harness those? Yeah, honestly, I think I did a decent job of kind of keeping those put away for a little bit. You know, I think actually going out after the fourth, you know, I started really feeling it a little bit and uh, made some real good pitches and started to try and do a little too much. And I think that's when, you know, I let the emotions creep in and, you know, it'll be a lesson for next time. But Definitely, it's nice to get back out there and, and kind of just feel all these things and enjoy this moment. Uh, enjoy seeing a lot of these guys that I've known for two years plus and haven't really got to go out there and pitch for. So, you know, the last time I was pitching, I pitched against Charlie Morton. So that's uh, kind of cool to do that. And, um, you know, it's, it's going to be a night to enjoy for sure. It almost feels like a, it is a second debut in a, in a way. So, yeah, I had a lot of fun out there. Going to go out there and compete next time. What would you feel about your stuff? I thought stuff was good. Yeah, I thought, um, again, tried to do a little too much. Couldn't quite find the breaking ball early, but the changeup was there. And, you know, we could talk about whether I went one too many, um, but I think it was more of a mis-execution and gave him a cookie to, that he could handle. So I thought stuff all in all was pretty good. And, uh, we attacked for the most part, and a couple got away from me, but we kept our foot on the gas, especially after that homer. And more often than not, I think it'll work out in our favor. When you might have the tougher days of rehab or when things are more frustrating, what were the things that kept you going and kept you motivated? Yeah, today, you know, it was a big one. Uh, day like today and, and the people that believed in me. I've always said I was going to be back here for the people that believed in me, not the ones that said I couldn't. So, you know, those people are my dad, uh, training staff uh, here and uh, a group I work with in Arizona and a lot of people that have helped me along the way. Um, you know, there's been some people in my corner for a long, long time that have stuck by me and... You know, it's a day for them, too. So those were the people that kept me going and kept me to this day right here. And now putting that behind, how good does it feel to leave all that in the past and just be making consistent starts and getting back to pitching like you always did? Yeah, great. I think last year was the first step to that, and obviously this is the bigger one. So we can think of it as this big story, and I prefer to just think of it as, you know, a bump in the road. So hopefully we're looking back on this in a long, long time, and um, we forget that, and this feels like a long time ago as well. Well, I would imagine that there were so many different takeaways, as you heard Michael Soroka talking about what was a, a day that he worked so hard to get back to. But as you just heard, and I thought that was a great question from Justin Toscano of the AJC. Now that you've done this, where does it go from here? And I think for Michael, it, as much as anything, has to be, okay, I have come back, and now I'm here, and now I want to concentrate on my opportunity in front of me and kind of put the comeback story to rest. I mean, a lot of people are going to say a lot of nice things to Michael Soroka. He still has that, you know, opportunity coming up to get on the mound at Truist Park, and you know, I'm already going to get some chills a little bit about the ovation that he is going to get. 
when he does take the mound, which uh, would line up to be against the Washington Nationals, I believe, on Saturday, uh, just based on the Braves' off, uh, off-day schedule this week in the three-game series against the Mets. But uh, putting all of that aside, I mean, it's hard to uh, put into words exactly how big, I'm sure, that moment was for him. But he always does such a nice job. He's one of the most thoughtful players you'll ever hear from. And easy to root for and a comeback story. I, I think we're all all about those. And what he could mean to this Braves rotation, I, I don't think can be overstated. Uh, the expectations, yeah, you got to temper him a little bit because he is so far removed from being an all-star in 2019, being the Braves' opening day starter in 2020. But this is a guy that's still only 25 years old, so to you know get his promising career back on track is a big win for him. Could be a big win for the Braves as well. It wasn't the only pitching story, though, that we saw in Oakland because, you know, the Braves made a move that uh, I don't know that everybody was uh, necessarily expecting. I think at some point you, you started to feel like it was going to be possible. And we have seen minor leaguers move through the Braves system pretty quickly, and you know, we saw it last year with uh, Michael Harris jumping from A. We saw Von Grissom jump up from A last year. And uh, in late 2021, we saw this hard-throwing uh, kid come up and get put in the bullpen. Maybe the Braves would give him a look in the bullpen in 2022. His name was Spencer Strider. And I think we know how that story went. He didn't have a ton of minor league starts either. And neither does A.J. smith Shawver. That's a name that I brought up a few weeks ago as he was blitzing his way through the Braves' minor league system. He started in low A, or excuse me, in high A Rome now after they've realigned everything. Three starts, scoreless baseball, and he punched his ticket to A Mississippi where he backed that up with two more extremely strong starts. And, oh, by the way, a whole bunch more strikeouts. And then he found himself in AAA Gwinnett as of, what, May 16th. So this guy's flying through the Braves minor league system. And as you look at what's happening at the big league level with Max Fried getting hurt, with Kyle Wright being hurt, with needing somebody to step into those spots in rotation, you know, questions for can Jared Schuster step in, can Dylan Dodd step in, how are we going to manage this? Well, in the background, the Braves were taking a 20-year-old righty who just kind of got into this whole pitching thing in 2020. I mean, he was not necessarily decided that, you know, professionally it was going to be on the mound. But the Braves, I think, made a pretty good choice because this is a kid with a a mid-90s to high-90s fastball, tremendous breaking stuff, and just a a live arm. And live arms are the kind of things that you can find a place for at the big league level. And when you look at what A.J. Smith-Shawver was doing in the minors, he was getting a lot of attention. But uh, you look at the overall numbers, seven starts. This is all as a starting pitcher, mind you, all seven appearances. 1.09 1.09 ERA across 33 innings in three separate levels here in 2023. 45 punch outs against just 12 walks. He's allowed only 19 hits, only one home run in those 33 innings. He's striking out, just in case you like this stat, and I love it. 12.3 uh, batters per nine innings. That, as they say, will play, and we get to put him in a bullpen role and utilize him and that live arm to maybe help you out at a place that you're pretty thin, or a guy that can throw some multiple innings. I think that's an exciting thing. We'll hear from Brian Snitker in a moment, but I want to hear A.J. Smith-Shawver kind of describing his meteoric rise through the Braves system and keeping in mind, this kid doesn't turn 21 until November. Here's A.J. Smith-Shawver. I've just been really blessed to have a great opportunity, and I'm really excited to be here. I think it's, it's a really good opportunity being around a bunch of guys that have been around the game for a long time, and I think there's a lot I can learn from a bunch of these guys. When you started the season in A-ball, did you have – this as a goal? Did you really think it was realistic to get here this season? Obviously, like, best-case scenario, I was, I was thinking, but, I mean, I don't think in my best-case scenario I uh, could have planned it out to be like this. I think it's really worked out in the, pretty well for me this year. I mean, it's great to see that they're just going to give young guys like me opportunities, and I'm just kind of grateful for the opportunity. You started pitching full-time in 2020, and less than three years later you're in the big leagues, I guess. How? <laughs> um, 
Uh, I don't know. It's kind of surreal. I mean, the Braves had just a lot of people that helped me develop and really kind of guided me. I was kind of, I don't know, I didn't really know exactly what I was doing when I first got into it. And I think just the guys around here, around this uh, organization, really put, gave me the right tools to compete and gave me the opportunities. So I think it all just kind of worked out. I would say it worked out quite nicely if you find yourself in the big leagues after just seven starts in what amounts to your second full professional season. A.J. smith has done a whole bunch of things right. Now, the question I get a lot, I got the question on Twitter as of this morning. We're talking about it a little bit. Even my producer, Garrett Chapman's asking me, how are they going to handle this guy? When are they going to use him? What is his role? You know, what are the Braves looking? What's the criteria for when A.J. smith Shaver A, makes his major league debut, but going forward, if he's going to be a part of this bullpen, how are they going to utilize him? Let's let Brian Snitker weigh in on this, and then I'll kind of give you my thoughts about it. Here's Snit. He's a young kid. We're going to put in the bullpen and pitch him out of there for a while. I think just kind of like we did Spencer last year, you know, try and get him multiple innings when we can, you know, but I think his future is going to be starting, but this is a way to kind of, I think, kind of break him in. He's throwing the ball really well. Stuff's really good. I've seen him just briefly in spring training a couple of times. It's a really nice arm, and, and he's throwing really good, and he's got talent and stuff, so. And that'll give you an opportunity when you've got that kind of arm talent, that kind of stuff, and clearly the results are there. So to kind of answer that question that we've, we've talked about a little bit online and here in the studio as well and right here on the radio on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, I do think that it, when you look at the blueprint for how Spencer Strider was used last year where the Braves would kind of they, – they kind of tried to take that effort to – or they made the effort to keep him stretched out so that if a starting opportunity did come along, it wasn't going to be, a, oh, well, we just had him throwing one inning you know, three times a week, and now we've got to figure out if we can get him up to four innings or get him back up to 75 pitches or whatever it is. You don't want to have to do all that. So I think they're going to utilize him in that fashion where they can just get him multiple innings if they can. Maybe the first one, you don't really worry about that as much. You just want to give him an inning and opportunity. I think there might have been one in Oakland if the series had played out the way that we expected, and maybe there was a couple of eight-to-one ball games or, you know, ten-to-three ball games where the Braves could have utilized him and given him an inning or two there. I think they would have, but you look at, unfortunately, some of the leverage situations in close games the Braves had to play there, and then clearly the way that the first game, at least in Arizona, played out, it didn't really feel like there was a position where you could put him in there, but I would expect to see him possibly as, a, I don't want to call it the backup, but a little bit of an insurance policy for any time a starter is unable to really cover the innings that you need, because we've seen what happens to the Braves' bullpen when they don't have somebody to come in and at least give them the five solid frames they need to kind of set them up for success. I think A.J. Smith-Schalver could kind of neutralize that. So uh, the move, obviously, to bring him up was to cut veteran left-hander Lucas Lickie. That, unfortunately, was a move over the offseason that, uh, for a variety of reasons, including effectiveness and also a little stint on the I.L., just didn't work out for the Braves. So they're going to try it out with A.J. Smith-Schalver. I think we're all excited to see it and looking forward to him getting on the mound. Coming up, we are going to talk with Alex Fast of Pitcher List. He is going to join me to talk about a couple of Braves starters who are key to their success not talking about Spencer Strider, Charlie Morton. Not talking about Max Fried, Kyle Wright. I'm talking about Bryce Elder and Michael Soroka. We're going to hear from Alex on what makes those guys so effective. And, of course, we'll uh, get into some more Braves talks. We continue here. This is From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. We will be back. This is From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, live from the Kia Studios on a Sunday morning. Welcome back in. We're going to keep our conversation focused on the Braves, and I'm really excited to take a deep dive into a couple of very important Braves pitchers, one that we've seen an awful lot from this year, another one who we're hoping to see even more from. To help me do this, I've got Alex Fast of PitcherList joining me right now on the WadeFord.com hotline. 
You can find his work at PitcherList.com and follow him on Twitter at AlexFast8. Alex, I appreciate you joining me here on From the Diamond as we talk a lot about the Atlanta Braves throughout the course of this show. I figured even though we're looking around the rest of baseball, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the Atlanta Braves pitching staff. And I feel like you might have some keen insights on this. So thanks for making the time. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Always down to talk pitching, and you guys have a really fun staff that you're working with, so I appreciate you uh, having me on. Yeah, it's been pretty fun for the last couple of years. A little more injuries than the Braves would like here in 2023, but hopefully as we get into the summer, it'll start to get healthy again. But there still are some stories and some performers this year that I do want to touch on. But before we dive into this, you know, I've known about pitcher lists for a little while now, but for those listening out there who may not be aware of it, you know, what do you guys like to focus on? What kind of info and other services are you providing? over on Pitcher List. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that you know about the site. We appreciate it. You know, we're a growing site. We're doing relatively well and have been growing over the past couple of years, which is very exciting. So uh, Pitcher List was originally founded by Nick Pollock. He's the CEO and founder and originally just started as Pitcher Gifts, very similar kind of to what Pitching Ninja has been doing for a while. Okay. Nick would take these amazing pitches that he found each day, make them a GIF and put them on Twitter. From there, it kind of blossomed into this fantasy baseball website. And from there, it's turned into a kind of one-stop shop for baseball analysis. I always tell broadcasters that if you're interested in learning about a pitcher, Pitcherless's player pages are really wonderful because we have a GIF of every single pitch. We have information, very detailed information about the movement profiles of that pitch, about the location, about the usage game over game, velocity game over game. Mm -hmm. We have the strike zone plot from every single game. You can see how a pitcher is thinking and varying their approach over the course of a season. We're excited about what we're doing, but yeah, people should check us out at pitcherless.com we got a lot of fun things that we're working on for the future as well. Well, I just happened to be on PitcherList.com before we got on here and actually in getting ready to chat with you about a few different Brave starters. And the mm. one I want to start out with is one that maybe about two months ago we might not have really been thinking about at all. And that, of course, is Bryce Elder. Because while we'll normally be talking about Spencer Strider or Max Fried and what makes them an ace of this staff, or maybe even how Charlie Morton turned himself into a strikeout pitcher in his 30s, all of those are great stories, but I think Bryce Elder may be spinning the best story of all this year. Somehow, as the calendar turns to June, he is the Major League's leader in ERA, which is after losing out on the fifth starter battle in the middle of March, getting optioned down to the minors, being an opening day starter for AAA Gwinnett. And he's not your prototypical young hard thrower. He's getting this done by really attacking the edges of the strike zone and having success. The advanced data doesn't necessarily illustrate that he should be as good as he is. So I guess I say all that to ask, what is Bryce Elder doing to have so much success here over the first two months of the season? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's, it's a fun question, too, right? This is why I dig pitching analysis, because each of these guys are unique, right? They are in the big leagues for a reason, and they succeed for a reason. As you very aptly put, Elder isn't necessarily blowing guys away on the radar gun, right? And that's usually when you see a guy dominating. That's a big part of the reason. Let's take a look at the arsenal, right? Because I think a lot of the answers to the questions of how can he succeed while having some underlying metrics that maybe indicate that he shouldn't be succeeding as much, those answers will be unlocked via the arsenal. So the most dominant pitch for him is, is the slider, right? There is a metric called run value that sort of adds together the value each pitch provides uh, and compiles them together to one number. So like a strikeout would be a good value and a home run is poor. And right. You add all those up and you get the run value of a pitch. According to run value, Bryce Elder has the best slider in all of baseball wow. right now. Yeah, it's very interesting. Now, there are some every metric has its own nuance. 
there are some kind of problems inherent with run value. And the big one is high leverage situations offer a lot of run value. So, for example, if Bryce Elder throws a slider that gets a ground ball uh, out of a bases loaded jam, that's more valuable to run value than a strikeout mm. with nobody on, okay. right? Because you prevented two runs from scoring as opposed to just one strikeout. Now, that makes a lot of sense when we add to it that Bryce Elder has a considerably high left on base rate. I think the league average is probably around mid to maybe high 70s, and his is above that. When you see a high left on base rate, that's there's two things that that indicates. One, maybe that pitcher has a pitch that's really good at getting ground balls or fly balls at the perfect moment. Or two, maybe they've been getting a little bit lucky in very high leverage situations, and maybe that will regress moving forward. Mm -hmm. The slider itself is kind of unique too, right? There's all this conversation in sports media right now, or baseball media, about sliders and sweepers mm -hmm. and the difference and right. what that looks like. His slider is what we call a gyro slider or a bullet spin slider. This would be a slider that you would see from Luis Castillo. This would be a slider that you see a little bit from Sandy Alcantara. Mm -hmm. The pitch breaks straight down as opposed from right to left. So while we've discussed that he gives up hard contact on this pitch, you know, he does on that slider, he doesn't get any lift to it. So what's happening is guys are getting on top of that slider. They're hitting it right down into the ground and they're doing it really hard, but it doesn't matter because they're, you know, they're just, you know, hitting these worm burgers. Right. So the other thing that I want to say about him, too, I know I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but I apologize because I get very excited about talking about this stuff. <laughs> right. um, the the one thing that I'm also curious about Bryce Elder that like we just talked about things that we can quantify, right? Mm -hmm. We can quantify the run value. Sure. We can quantify how much guys are getting on top of the ball. What I'd be curious to know and we can't currently quantify it from a non-front office perspective, I'm sure they can quantify it, is I wonder if he has elite last-second break. There was a really interesting study done by Driveline where there's a moment that a pitch can break and the human eye can't see it. If a batter is looking forward, the periphery only goes so far. And there's a moment right before that if a pitch breaks in that time when a batter can't see it, obviously it would be more difficult to square up. Mm -hmm. I genuinely wonder... If there's something going on with that slider, which I believe has some seam shifted weight qualities, but that's a whole nother conversation that is preventing guys from squaring it up. That was a 17 hour answer just to say that the slider might be a little unique for Bryce Elder. Yeah, and Bryce Elder clearly has been using it to great results this year. You've laid out a lot of interesting metrics and, and trust me, and beyond the amount of time that we have here to chat about him on just this show there is a lot to parse through when it comes to why somebody's having this kind of success. It's not just, does he throw strikes, which was a question for Bryce Elder when he first came to the big leagues last year. He went down to AAA, addressed that, showed some of the qualities that we've seen this year in the final, what, half a dozen or so starts a year ago. And now he routinely gets the Braves into the sixth inning or beyond. And clearly he's got an arsenal that is doing something right because even the hard hit contact is not necessarily turning into fly balls that are leaving the ballpark, for example. We're talking with Alex Fast, a pitcher list here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. He joins me on the WadeFord.com hotline. The Braves rotation, and one of the reasons Bryce Elder is here, it would appear, is because it's been beset by injuries this year. Max mm -hmm. Fried is out. Kyle Wright is out even longer, we believe, just based on the timetables as we know them right now, which are anything but clear. Uh, but Michael Soroka has been out for nearly three years. He returned to the mound in Oakland this week. He gets another go against the Arizona Diamondbacks on Sunday Many projected Soroka to be the ace of this rotation not too long ago. Now he's back. 
He's still just 25 years old. So let me start with this, and then we can roll into maybe the current version of Soroka. But what made him so good prior to his injury and, I guess, set those expectations so high for him? Yeah, I mean, I think there were a lot of things that gave him that very, very successful season a couple of years ago. And that's what we're kind of looking to recreate, right? The yeah. 2019 season. The slider in and of itself was a pitch that was good, right? It's it's a very, very good pitch for him. And I think he's going to be able to continue to have success with it overall. There were some alarming signs back then that maybe he isn't going to be, I don't want to say alarming, but a mid two ERA wouldn't necessarily have uh, been sustainable for him. With that said, sure. there's still an elite ceiling for him. Back, if we're looking at 2019, we know that Michael Soroka isn't necessarily an elite swing and miss pitcher, right? He's not a guy who's going to necessarily get you a 25, 26% K rate overall, but he did have a pitch in that slider, as I mentioned, that had a 16% swinging strike rate. Now, overall, in today's game, that isn't a number that's necessarily going to blow you away, right? That would be in the high teens or the low 20s or something like that. But it is still what his kind of bread and butter pitch was. There was also a lot of swing and miss to that changeup. Now, we saw a good amount of swing and miss in that first start. There was something really interesting that popped up in the baseball community overall about that changeup where the stuff plus numbers dropped considerably on that pitch. It was really, really low. Like it, usually it's, I think closer to 100 and it was like a 43 or something like that mm -hmm. people might have seen some discourse about that it's way early i think you need a few more change-ups thrown for that to stabilize i want to keep my eye on that overall but you also have to anticipate i mean how many innings did he throw over the past three or four years it was not many right so i think when we're watching mike soroka even though he's had some time to ramp up in the minors we want to take some time let him get back on his feet let the stuff stabilize over the next couple of starts. But the one thing that I paid attention to in the first start and that I really want to pay attention to moving forward is just that slider, right? Like, let's just go ahead and start with that slider, see what's happening there. If he can establish that pitch, which he started to do in that first start against Oakland, it didn't pick up any whiffs, but it did pick up about five called strikes, which is good. If he can get that pitch back, then we're going to see the Soroka that we're used to. So that's kind of the key to this, because my next question for that, you know, obviously what made him so good before, I think ground ball rate was something that was some working in his uh, favor. Mm -hmm. I think it would surprise people to know, and I know it surprised me when I was doing a recap after 2019, that Max Fried is actually a better ground ball pitcher than Michael Soroka, because it just didn't seem to be their profile coming through the minors. But Max Fried also throws like six pitches now. So he has transformed himself <laughs> into a totally different style of pitcher. But, you know, this is, I think, the expectation with Soroka coming up at 20, 21 years old, really establishing himself, rookie of the year, runner-up, an all-star, opening day starter in 2020. Then he gets hit by this injury. Clearly, he had some things that were going for him that had people so excited about him. And at that age, you could imagine that he might evolve maybe in a similar fashion or at least uh, mm -hmm. along the same path of the way that Freed did. Uh, some mechanical tweaks he's clearly made after a twice-torn Achilles, a little bit of uh, inflammation in the arm last year that kind of cut into his minor league rehab starts. But I thought the Arsenal, as you pointed out, against Oakland looked pretty good. What do you expect to see from Soroka? What does he need to do in order to recapture that magic? Because he does throw a good sinker. He's got a mid-90s fastball when he needs it. I kind of feel like the slider, clearly, as you pointed out, very important. But maybe the changeup in all of this might be the pitch that really makes him uh, not that he was ever one-dimensional, but maybe three-dimensional, if you'll pardon the pun. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm curious to see where the arsenal kind of levels out for him, too, right? When he pitched in 2019, 
it was a different game that we weren't even talking about sweepers back then. Right. And he was clearly a sinker slider kind of guy. He goes to the sinker a lot in the first start. I think he splits his usage between his sinker and his changeup. But I think it is worth noting that right away he starts to attack with the changeup. Um, I don't know if that necessarily means that it's going to be something that's a larger part of his profile moving forward. I don't even necessarily think that that would be a bad thing because mm-hmm. setting up that east-west movement profile, yeah. uh, it, you, know, you know, setting that up to also better his slider over the course of a game would be interesting. I was almost anticipating that when he came back, he might have been doing what we see his teammate in Bryce Elder doing, where he's saying, you know what, I'm going to go with the slider as many times as I need to and then save that change up as a put away pitch at the end or, you know, a second time through the order kind of pitch. So I'm curious to see what if he builds to that sinker foundation overall, if he comes mm-hmm. back and he says, yeah, I'm going to start with this sinker because in 2019, that was a very, very good pitch for him. I think it gave up like a, a 288 batting average against a 316 Woba, which if you were talking about a four seamer wouldn't necessarily be a lead. But when you're talking about a sinker, that isn't terrible. It's a different league too, as we keep mentioning, or as I keep mentioning, sinkers are, you know, they, they've kind of gone out of vogue a little bit. So I'd be curious too, if there's any change whatsoever to see if Soroka wants to try and get more swings and misses. I don't know if that's going to be a part of his arsenal, but again, if he starts to sit, slider first, then it isn't out of the realm of possibility for him. Yeah, he certainly has the arsenal, I think, that could, depending on usage and a number of other tweaks that he could make, be one that might generate more swings and misses. Will it turn him into a 200 strikeout pitcher? Not necessarily, but it might make a difference as you mentioned, second, third time through the order as he starts to add some wrinkles to what he is showing some of these hitters. Chatting with Alex Fast, you can find his work on Pitcher List. You can follow him on Twitter at AlexFast8. All right, well, Alex, I'm going to go out here on a limb and say that, like the rest of us, you're probably pretty impressed with what Spencer Strider has done basically Mm -hmm. one year in the Atlanta rotation now as he jumped in very end of May in 2022. Uh, Here are some numbers. 31 starts, a 284 ERA, 271 strikeouts in only 171 innings. He's issued just 56 walks, an OPS against him under 550. Uh, I heard something really interesting when he was no-hitting the Marlins a few weeks ago. Skip Schumacher, their manager, said, it was like facing an elite-level closer for eight innings. That might be the best description of Spencer Strider that I have heard over the last year, and goodness knows I've heard a lot of them. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to talk about when it comes to him. He's an incredibly special pitcher, and he's also just like, I love the fact that he's a personality, too. That always is going to make me a little bit more interested in him, you know, going on Foolish Baseball and doing the uh, ranking all of the Strokes albums and the S-tiers and stuff like that. He just seems like a genuinely good human being as well. There is something so fascinating to the way that he established his four-seamer, right? And to some of the changes that he has made over the course of the season. And there's a lot of things that stick out. When it comes to the four-seamer, he talked recently in a Buster-only interview about how he kind of built it after uh, he had his Tommy John surgery um, when he was over in Clemson, right? And he mm-hmm. said that it was a combination of four things, velocity, movement, extension, and release height. So if we're going to break those down, obviously we know that the velocity is there. He's able to hit triple digits. He's got the velocity, and that's one factor that makes that four seem so incredibly elite. When it comes to extension, he actually has, I believe, the seven or excuse me, the eighth best extension among right-handed pitchers. He gets seven feet of extension. So what's the importance of that? If people might not be aware, is if I'm ex- you know. Essentially, if I'm bringing that four-seamer closer to you when I release it, it's only going to make that four-seamer better, especially with the velocity that he has and the movement profile that he has. He just gets really far down the mound 
you know, thanks to what being, you know, he's called Quadzilla for a reason. Yeah. He can get really far down the mound, release that four-seamer closer to you. That's the uh, second part of the uh, equation. The release height is not elite. It's like more average, but that's, you know, he isn't the, the tallest pitcher in the world. But the movement profile on the pitch overall is fantastic. Mm-hmm. He just gets a really, really good amount of carry or hop or vert uh, to that pitch, which makes it difficult to square up. Um, the one thing about that fastball, too, is what when you have that amount of natural rise or natural carry to that pitch, you are able to make more mistakes. I was talking about this yesterday with David Cohen about Bryce Miller. He has an, also uh, an insane amount of vert or carry to his four-seamer. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, batters think that it is falling via gravity more so than it is. And that's why they swing under the pitch because they think, oh, okay, I see the four-seam coming towards me. Naturally, it's like any four-seamer I've seen. It's going to drop a little bit just because of gravity, and I'm going to square it up. It doesn't drop as much as the batter thinks. They go under it. And as a result, when Strider misses, if he misses middle-middle, Obviously, you don't want to miss there, but you can miss there if you are Spencer Strider because it's just not dropping as much. The slider is also elite. There's a fantastic article from Eno Saris about can he succeed with just two pitches over the course of the season? Because that's rare, right? And that was, I'm sure, a big discourse in the offseason. What makes him different is no one has had two pitches like he has had. Like no one has had. If any other pitcher had just his slider, they could be just as uh, they wouldn't be just as good, but they could have a very good career. Same thing with his four seamer. So when you combine having those two elite stuff pitches together, that makes you really elite. The last two things I'll say are a kind of fun anecdote that kind of cracks me up. We have stuff plus exists on fan graphs. He has a 150 stuff plus on his fastball, which leads all of baseball. The mm-hmm. second highest last I checked was about 127. Wow. I spoke with someone at Driveline about they have their own internal stuff plus model. His stuff plus is over 220 on his four seamer. Wow. It's 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 unbelievable. And lastly, the changeup exists too. And what I love about that changeup and the establishment of it is the feedback he's getting from hitters there's a great clip i saw where he goes to ozzy albies in the middle of spring training and he asks him about that changeup, and albies is like i had no idea what to do with it so the fact that there is a level of growth that could still be there for spencer strider is terrifying to any other person that is not spencer strider or an atlanta braves fan it's unbelievable particularly it should be terrifying to major league hitters that he's going to be facing that's for sure Uh, alex really appreciate all your time but i don't want to get out of here without allowing you to uh, let us know a little bit about the alex fast show tell us uh, where we can find it and what you're going to be focused on yeah thanks um so this debuted uh yesterday uh it's a new show that we're working on over at pitcher list where i am just sitting with one pitcher for 15 20 25 30 minutes however long it takes and doing an exhaustive deep dive on that one pitcher and in doing so i'm hoping to illuminate some of the more esoteric or more heady pitching analysis terms i am not a pitching expert i really am not i am trying to be someone who knows a lot about pitching but i'm also trying to learn with a group of fans who are interested in learning about pitching. So we're going to break down induced vertical break. We're going to break down vertical approach angle, break down seam shifted wake, tilt, spin efficiency, why those things matter and why the pitchers that you watch every day 
care about those things because it helps them become a better pitcher. So we debuted yesterday. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have the fantastic David Cohn with me to break down Bryce Miller and what makes him tick. So we're really excited. It's going to come out uh, every Wednesday over on PitcherList.com. Oh, very cool, and obviously you got a pitcher like David Cohn who knows a thing or two about strikeouts and pitching for a very long time. Awful lot of fun to have those conversations, and first of many that I'm sure you're going to be having over there, so make sure you check out the Alex Fast Show in addition to everything going on at PitcherList.com, and make sure you're following Alex on Twitter at AlexFast8. Uh, really appreciate this. Enjoyed it. You know, we just talked about a handful of Braves pitchers. There's a few more on the staff, so maybe we can jump into those at some point in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, listen, anytime you need me to come on and ramble incoherently for 15 minutes about any pitcher, I'm more than willing to do it. I really appreciate you reaching out. It's uh, obviously a very big fan of your work, so I appreciate you having me. Well, thank you very much, and I look forward to other collaborations in the future. When we come back, we'll take our look around the big leagues, and we'll do it next right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, more From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back in to From the Diamond. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game as we embark on Hour 2 of our two-hour baseball odyssey here on a Sunday morning. Appreciate you joining me here on the show as we do it live. And, of course, always available wherever you get your podcast and on the Odyssey app. You can find From the Diamond there just by searching for, get this, From the Diamond. That's where you'll find it. Be that as it may, we like to take a look at other things happening across the world of baseball. We got some great insight on you know the Braves and their week that was, and of course the uh, the successes of a couple of their pitchers and the success they need to see from these guys. From Alex Fast, a pitcher list, definitely appreciate him stopping by to join the show. But uh, as we look across the rest of the league, I like to find a few stories that just kind of caught my eye from the week that was, and one that uh, continues to catch my eye. Uh, for one reason or another, is what's going on with the umpires across Major League Baseball. Usually, uh, this is about strike zones and things I don't enjoy and the possibility of an automated strike zone, which I've been told I will hate, and I don't know. I want to find out, and if I hate it, then maybe we can get rid of it. That's another story for another time. But one of the things that Major League Baseball has cracked down on, and I think that there's a point to this, because it had gotten a little bit out of hand, is the substances that pitchers were using to enhance their grip on the baseball. Now they are allowed to have rosin. That's the end of the list. They're allowed to have rosin. And when you're out there, I don't know, exerting yourself at a high level under the hot sun, you might start sweating. Apparently, you can't mix your sweat with the rosin. That's bad. Umpires don't like it. And Uri Perez, who's a 20-year-old phenom for the Miami Marlins, he found that out the hard way in his start on Saturday afternoon. Take a listen to the scene of what was going on as the Marlins and Athletics were going at it, and Uri Perez was uh, getting ready to resume his activities on the mound. Time is called. The umpires getting together. I'm not sure if uh, an illegal action there, or not uh, illegal necessarily, but maybe a little bit too much of the sweat on the on the arm. And what you don't want to have happen is uh, then you, you get the rosin there, and then it becomes a big mess with the sticky stuff and everything else. So just uh, a little warning to make sure that he's all good. Well, here's the thing. You know, the rosin's there for you to use, and this is to my in my opinion, this has become a debacle a little bit with the umpires and his rosin. Rosin is the only thing that you can use to get a good field. Yeah, and it's the only thing that's left for you. And we're not talking about spider tack. We're not talking about the old sunscreen and rosin mix that a lot of pitchers, I think, like to use and that I don't really think is that big of an issue. But, uh, again, leaving that to the side, that's the conversation from the Marlins broadcast on Valley Sports Florida. And you could hear plain as day the umpire saying, hey, go get a towel. 
he had to towel off his arms to make sure they didn't have too much sweat so that it wouldn't activate the rosin differently and it wouldn't change the grip here. And we've seen this a couple of times, quite a few times actually this year, more than a couple. That would be selling it short. Max Scherzer, I think, had the most visceral reaction to it. I played the audio on the show last month, but he was just, he could not be more clear that all he was using was rosin and that the rules weren't exactly clear. So, Perhaps this will be something that gets tweaked going forward, but these umpires, they are on a mission to basically crack down on any use of perceived foreign or illegal substances to enhance the grip. But now at this point, apparently you need to monitor the amount that you sweat and make sure that it doesn't contact the rosin, or at least that the mix of this, if you're the Heisenberg of rosin and sweat, doesn't reach a critical mass while you're pitching. Meanwhile, out in Houston, that's where Reggie Jackson works. I don't think a lot of people realize that, that he's uh, with the Houston Astros. He's in their front office as a special assistant uh, of all the teams I expected him to end up with, and he played for quite a few, including the Athletics and the Yankees, obviously, and the Baltimore Orioles, California Angels at that time as well. But he ended up with the Houston Astros of all places. And you might imagine if you're out in the American League West, you get a firsthand look at Shohei Otani, and Reggie Jackson has certainly gotten one of those. The man they call Mr. October, Hall of Famer, 500 home run club, a five World Series, and some of the most iconic moments in the World Series, and an MVP under his belt. Well, Reggie Jackson weighed in on his thoughts on Shohei Otani, and I think he is just as impressed as all the rest of us are. He was talking to Houston reporters this week. He does things that no one else can be comparable to. You can't compare him to anybody else. You can compare him to a certain hitter. You can compare him to a certain pitcher. But there's nobody that's done what he's done except Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth had World Series records, shutout innings and things like that. It's just a marvel. I don't know how you pay him. I, 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 really, I mean, he, he's just an absolute marvel when you when you think about what he does. And big man, strong, young looking. I mean, like, wow. Now the whole package, according to Mr. October there, not only does he look good, he also plays good or vice versa. I may have that backwards, but... When it comes to what Shohei Otani can expect in the free agent market, and I'm going to have Anthony Castrovents of MLB.com on in just a little bit, and we'll talk about this. One executive that was quoted in the Los Angeles Times recently is predicting a 12-year, $600 million contract for Shohei Otani. That's $50 million per season. That clearly would set an AAV record. I've talked to a lot of reporters around, and I don't pretend to know all the ins and outs of a contract, but I could definitely make a case that this is a guy who is a $25 or $30 million pitcher and a 25 or $30 million hitter, and he does both of these things. I also saw some people that were saying that maybe he should just play the outfield and be a closer. That may be one of the worst ideas I've heard all year. I want to see him affecting the game as much as possible, not taking away from some of the things that make him great, and being an elite-level starting pitcher is something that makes him great. But interesting to hear Mr. October Reggie Jackson weighing in on Shohei Otani as well. On the other end of this spectrum, somebody who got paid big time after being the World Series MVP in 2019 was Steven Strasburg of the Washington Nationals. He has not been able to resume or, or really take part in any rehab activities in over a month. He started to ramp up a little bit early in the season up in Washington, but uh, according to the Washington Post, an uh, article put out by Jesse Daugherty, um, people familiar with the situation, three of them, said that there's increasing doubt that the Nationals' right-hander will ever pitch again. Strasburg's 34 years old. Uh, as you look at what he signed, that contract, seven years, $245 million, beginning with the 2020 season, uh, he has thrown just 31 and a third innings. Uh, he had surgery for carpal tunnel syndrome in 2020. He had thoracic outlet surgery. Uh, just in case you're, you're curious about that, 
that happened in 2021. That was removing a rib and two muscles from his neck, that whole surgery. So what he's dealing with apparently is a tingling, pain, and numbness, and that is keeping him from being able to pitch. He had ramped up and done some uh, bullpen sessions, and back in January he felt some pretty serious pain and shut himself down again. And at this point you can't really blame him because when you look at the laundry list of surgeries that he's had, it was kind of trending in this direction. You had to start wondering, even if you're the most optimistic, if you're Steven Strasburg on this comeback trail, you have to really start wondering if you're going to be able to make it all the way back. And I'm sure he has spent a lot of time doing that. And I hate to hear that for anybody, especially someone that was as promising as Strasburg was. The Nationals, though, do not have disability insurance on Strasburg's contract. And this almost seems secondary when you're talking about somebody's career ending. But as we do talk about the business of baseball quite a bit on this show and just in general, according to four people familiar with the situation, again, this is from the Washington Post, that $245 million the Nationals weren't able to find an insurance company that they could agree on for the policy because of how big um, all of the cost would be for that policy and given Strasburg's age and extensive injury history. So uh, unfortunate to hear this again as Steven Strasburg's career, which got off to such a just an – it was a one of the biggest hyped debuts that I can think of. I mean, and there have been some other ones, but Steven Strasburg came in with a kind of fanfare that – it was like must-see TV. Everybody in baseball was talking about that debut with the Nationals, the dominant run that he went on. Then, of course, he had to have Tommy John surgery, so throw that on the list of ailments that he's had to deal with. It has been a rough ride for Steven Strasburg. Certainly hope that he's able to find his way back and resume his big league career at some point, but it does not look likely. Uh, comeback that did happen, first time since 2015 that John Singleton, the first baseman formerly of the Astros, found his way back to the big leagues. He was promoted over the weekend by the Milwaukee Brewers. He's only 31 years old. He was in the lineup for Milwaukee on Saturday. He was a big-time prospect for the Astros. This is when they were in the middle of their 100-loss seasons and rebuilding. He signed a $10 million long-term deal before he ever made it to the major leagues. And a lot of people, I remember when this deal happened, were kind of wondering, what precedent is this setting? Well, I don't know if it set a precedent for all the deals we're seeing for young players these days, but for uh, the Astros and for Singleton, it didn't work out. He hit 171 over the parts of two seasons that he played with Houston, and then he had to deal with a lot of drug rehab. And it, it really, his, his path was just led about as far away from baseball as you could get. But he went out, played in the Mexican League, was signed by the Brewers last season, and finds his way back to the big leagues. A true tale of perseverance for John Singleton, who made it back to the big leagues for the first time since 2015. Eight years to get him back up. And hopefully, he'll be around to stay, help out the Milwaukee Brewers as he was able to uh, complete that comeback. I want to wrap things up with this as I talk a lot about you know, going around the big leagues and you know, giving you all the other stories from Major League Baseball. We're going to go down to the minors for this one because I saw it and couldn't believe it. The Rocket City Trash Pandas, that's a double-A team for the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim of Orange County, California. They overcame a 12-0 deficit, beating the Montgomery Biscuits 15-12 the other night. Take a listen to the culmination of what was a crazy night of baseball. Then I'll tell you a little bit about the box score. The pitch. Swing, and that ball is stroked into the gap in right center field, and the Trash Panthers are going to get some more runs. Into score one is Carroll, right behind him, Martinez. Throw to the plate, not in time. And now it's 15-12, to 12, Trash Pandas. A two-run triple for Jeremiah Jackson. Well, Jeremiah Jackson was the guy that uh, put them on top or just added to that lead in an 11-run seventh inning. That's right, 11-run seventh inning. And that's the kind of rally you need when you fall down 12 to nothing at the end of three. 
Uh, they were down 12 to 3 through 5, 12 to 4 through 6, and then they threw an 11 spot up there as one does and picked up that 15 to 12 victory. Just an unbelievable night of baseball. When I called some uh, minor league games back in my day, I hate to use that phrase, I'm really not that old, but it has been a while. Biggest uh, comeback that I remember calling was a nine run inning, and it was a comeback that I believe erased initially at least an eight run deficit uh, for the club I was calling for. But 15 to 12. That's a crazy day of baseball for a minor league play-by-play guy and an 11-run inning to overcome a 12-0 deficit. That's the kind of thing you don't see too terribly often. Well, that'll wrap things up here on our trip around the big leagues, but we've got a lot more to talk about across Major League Baseball as Anthony Castro-Vince of MLB.com joins me. We're going to get his take on where exactly Ronald Acuna Jr. stands among the best players in baseball because what he's doing in 2023 is pretty special. We'll have that conversation next right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back in to From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Live from the Kia Studios on a Sunday as we continue to take a look at some of the biggest stories going on across Major League Baseball. I want to bring somebody into the show who covers it all. Joined right now by Anthony Castro-Vents of MLB.com to take a look at some of the other things going on across Major League Baseball over the first two months of the season. Uh, Anthony, with those two months in mind, um, I think that it's been an interesting ride so far. We've had the new rules going into play. We had the Rays' incredible start. We've got a few clubs kind of searching for consistency and what feels like a lot of injuries to start the year as well. Surprising statistical standouts, all the good stuff. I just feel like we're getting a little bit of everything in 2023 with an awful lot of miles left to go. Yeah, a lot of surprises standings-wise for me. I think one kind of overarching theme um, there's just a lot of underperforming teams. Like a lot of teams just haven't been as good as I thought they'd be. You know, yeah. I mean, you had some slow starts from the likes of, uh, uh, you know, the Cardinals, the Mets, uh, the Blue Jays. I could probably name like 10 teams that are just yeah. nowhere near as good as I thought they would be. And uh, I guess that's my fault for thinking such good <laughs> things about them. But it, I think that has been one theme. Um, you know, the Rays obviously distinguished themselves very early. You know, it's kind of leveled off. They haven't fallen back much at all but they've kind of just been a normal great team now as opposed to an absurdly historically great team which they were in the first few weeks and yeah the rule change is kind of uh an overarching thing as well where the adjustment to that has been super quick i I think Mm -hmm. quicker than even the most optimistic souls uh would have thought I think spring training was obviously pretty beneficial in that regards. So it's been an interesting year, to say the least. Yeah, and then we've got, again, a lot of baseball left to be played. So some of these clubs that didn't get off to the starts that they wanted to, they're going to have some time to course correct. And we have this little time of year that I like to refer to as just the maybe the most wonderful time of year for baseball fans. That's the trade deadline. But we're not even close to that yet. we got to get through the All-Star game, all that good stuff. And uh, voting has already started. So it's really letting me know that we're moving through the season pretty quickly. And <laughs> of all the things that we debate and discuss as fans and media types around the game of baseball, I don't think there's really a debate that Shohei Otani does things that we've never seen before. And it probably makes him the best player in the game when you add it all up. But we have seen the debate between he and Aaron Judge for MVP in the American League, and we're setting up for another round, it would appear, this year. I'm curious, though, reporting in from the Atlanta Precinct, where maybe Ronald Acuna Jr. starts to factor into this because he's doing some pretty special things this year. Where do you think he is in the quote-unquote best player in baseball discussion because he's got to be in there somewhere? He sure is. It's interesting. It depends what you're looking for, what your timetable is, etc. So, like, if you're telling me, all right, we're, you, you can start a baseball team uh, from scratch and it's for, you know, one season, this, this current season, I, I, I think – 
pretty much every team would want to start with Shohei Otani because of his impact uh, in, in both, you know, pitching and hitting, which is obviously a freak of nature type stuff and just yeah. doesn't happen. But then it's what kind of player do you want? I mean, do you want Aaron Judge is obviously um, the biggest power threat of that group. Ronald Acuna is probably the most dynamic of that group. Between Judge and Acuna, he's probably the most dynamic player in, in terms of you know helping you in a lot of ways. Now, he's also the youngest of everyone we're talking about. So if you're looking long term, I mean, that's a guy that might be my first choice to build a team around, quite frankly, right now, because I think we're just seeing him scratch the surface of what he can be. Of course, last year he was uh, still hobbled, uh, as, as is understandable, you know, coming off such a major knee surgery. I think a lot of us kind of overestimated how quickly he would come back from that at the elite level that we know he can play at. But this year he's done that, you know, and he's on pace for – He'd be the first guy with 30 homers and 60 steals. I mean, that is well within the – there's all kinds of ways to play with the numbers and what he can do, but I think 30 and 60 is well within his capability, both given his talent and the environment we're in with stolen bases. I mean, that can happen for him. So just truly exciting if you're a Braves fan because I, I think you're just at the beginning of what this is and what this can be for a long time. Yeah, kind of a return to the expectations, very lofty expectations that he yeah. set prior to the knee injury in 2021 and having gotten a chance to chat with him a little bit this year as he has found his way back to that form, the pre-injury form, that's the number one thing he points at. It's like, look, last year I was still a, a little bit in pain. I was dealing with that every day. Now I don't have to deal with that. And I trust my body again. And when you do that and you've got that kind of skill, you can imagine some pretty special things are going to happen on a baseball field. And we're seeing it. You mentioned the 30 and 60. That's never been done before. 30 and 50 has only been done twice. And then the 40-40 mm. club is pretty small. And all of these things <laughs> yeah. are out there within his reach, which is truly incredible as far as the talent is concerned. Uh, chatting with Anthony Castrovents of MLB.com. Make sure you follow his work on Twitter at Castrovents is where you can find him. He joins me on the WaitFor.com hotline here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Going back to Otani, I've had a segment on my show for several weeks called Stuff Only Shohei Otani Can Do. It amazes me to see these things, you know, whether it's, you know, the hardest hit ball that belongs to him and he doesn't allow any hard hit balls by the team that he faced on the mound that same day. Whatever it may be, he continues to deliver these things on a regular basis. So his free agency to flash way forward, to skip ahead in our story quite a bit, it has a chance to be the biggest, I think, in all of professional sports, at least in North America. How do you even begin to handicap the deal that he may be offered by team or a team or teams when he does reach free agency this winter? Because he may reach a stratosphere of salary, the likes of which we haven't even thought of. Yeah, I've, I've heard people say, you know, he, he's a $300 million hitter. He's a $300 million pitcher. It might not be that simple uh, to just you know, add it all up. But um, there, there's always nuance to these things. But, if you know, if he if he was the first to, to crack that $500 million threshold, would not surprise anybody in the industry, I don't think. You know, there's always concern with pitchers and then particularly this pitcher, you know, a guy who's doing things that no one else does. You know, there's the long-term injury concern. He's, of course, already had surgery, and he's put himself in such an amazing position. And what I love about him is he has not been shy about being, um, you know, the superstar caliber player he is. He understands what it means. He understands what it means in his home country. He understands what it means here. And he's really embraced everything that comes with that. And to play both ways in the All-Star game when he didn't have to, to participate and thrive on the World Baseball Classic stage, when he didn't have to. And by the way, I, I thought that was important too for his free agency because yep. 
as we all know with the angels, you know, he hasn't had that opportunity to pitch in big moments, big games, but boy, did he show out in that tournament. So that was good for him as well. So yeah, I mean, the, the sky's the limit in terms of the number. You just, you know, knock on wood and, and hope he can continue to stay healthy. Yeah, that's something we all want to see most certainly. I had Victor Rojas on the show a few weeks ago, and he really brought up something I hadn't thought of. It's that the marketability of Shohei Otani, you know, maybe a lot of people haven't seen him playing out on the West Coast, but maybe he stays on the West Coast. We don't know how that's all going to shake out yet, but he mentioned that there might even be a chance for whatever Major League Baseball team that signs him or if he stays with the Angels to really kind of reach its marketing arm further into Japan and really tap in on this because you know he's going to get a big deal. And we always yeah. talk about, you know, what's the marketability of baseball's biggest stars. I mean, Mike Trout, I think, gets a lot of flack sometimes, unnecessarily so, for whether or not baseball has marketed him properly. But Shohei Otani's playing on the same team with Trout, so it's crazy to think that these two guys have been together. They both have a larger-than-life persona, at least on the field. It'll be fascinating to see what exactly some club, or maybe, again, if the Angels really tap into it, you can do from a marketing standpoint, but that may not be really something everybody's worried about when it comes to free agency. No, bingo. I mean, that, there's no one else like him, and not just the player profile, but that element as well. It's a special thing. I don't know what the dollar figure is on that, but I'm sure it's high because now your jersey sales, your cap sales, mm-hmm. et cetera, it's hard to relate just how big of a celebrity this guy is in Japan. You know, because we're not over there, we don't live it and see it every day. But from everything I hear, I mean, he's he's kind of on that level that Babe Ruth was in the United States in the early part of last century. So it is definitely part of the equation, you know, for whoever signs him. It's not just what is his projected wins above replacement. It's that projected marketing above replacement as well. Yeah, no, that's a really good way to put it. And when you're on a list where it's like you and Babe Ruth, you've probably done something right as far as the pitching and hitting and the overall impact on the game. And Shohei Otani has shown us a lot of things that baseball had not seen in the better part of about a century or so. Um, Anthony, there's a lot of, I think, intriguing stories across baseball in these early divisional races we touched on briefly. The AL East is really shaping up to be an absolute beast of a division. Everybody looks very competitive. Both central races strike me more as a case of, does anybody really want this thing? No, really, somebody can take it. That's not really played out, I think, the way some of those clubs like the Cardinals maybe had in mind. And then out west, we've got some surprises, particularly, I think, what Arizona is doing and maybe what San Diego is not doing. What's kind of jumped off the page to you? I know you mentioned there might be 10 teams that haven't necessarily met their expectations, but on the flip side of that coin, there have been a few clubs that have, I think, been able to take advantage of that. Yeah, they really have. The Rangers are a really nice surprise, and it's nice to see them rewarded for really going for it. I mean, that's a hard thing to do to build your team, quote unquote, in free agency. Mm -hmm. And I think there were a lot of us who kind of rolled our eyes, especially the way last year played out and just said, well, this is, uh, you know, a bit ambitious. I, I, I applaud them for going for it, but it's nice to see them rewarded for that. I mean, they're not just, it doesn't feel like a fluky thing for them to be in first place. I mean, they got a, they got the best run differential in baseball right now. So, um, and then you mentioned that, you know, central divisions, what stands out to me is just, what you knew in your heart has been really hammered home this year, which is the with the more balanced schedule. You know, we're really seeing the separation of the competitive level of an East versus a Central. I, mm-hmm. I think in both leagues, you know, and a West versus a Central. It's just a two very different things. So 
because that is the case, whoever wins the NL or AL Central, one of those teams will probably win the World Series because that's usually how baseball works. Where, <laughs> right. where they're very clearly winning, you know, one of the weakest divisions in baseball, and then they'll probably get hot in October and and go crazy. And it'll probably be the Cardinals, right? Because that's usually how that works. But yeah, it's really the AL East has been something else this year, and it's 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 so fun to see that start to take shape. I feel like the Yankees are are just starting to look the way they expect it to look. Uh, I think they're really excited about the direction their team is taking. Um, you know, the Orioles, it's been nice to see them mm-hmm. prove that that last year was not just a, a fun little fluky thing, but something they could really build off of, and they have in a big way. And, you know, we mentioned the Rays have been – I think we knew they were top to bottom of the roster as good as anybody in, in terms of just the overall depth of the roster, but, you know, to play at the level they have has been just shocking. So – yeah, that's going to be a battle all the way, it seems. Let me follow up with just this, and it can be just kind of a rapid-fire thing. Is there a team that has played, maybe it's the Rangers, to a level thus far that you feel like has some staying power, or is there another team that you feel like kind of has that staying power from their early season showing, and is there a club that you expect to come on strong as we go a little bit further into the season, maybe as the weather heats up, and who knows what they'll do at the trade deadline? Well, I'll tell you what, uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks, this is a rare instance where um, – my frisky pick, uh, the team that I, I thought – I always try to pick one. You know, there's mm-hmm. always some team that – that comes out of nowhere, but, I mean, it's kind of out of nowhere for them to be, a, you know, best record in the National League, and they, they've just been fantastic. So they've even exceeded my expectations. Yeah. But that was a team I had circled as, as potentially, you know, could surprise some people this year because I knew they had um, some good young pitching. You know, if they could just get their bullpen right, and I knew Corbin Carroll was, was ready to pop for them. And, and so he's been fantastic. They've been fantastic. So it's, it's fun to see that, you know, staying power, it's asking a lot in that division, right? I mean, right. the Padres probably still have a lot of better days ahead of them. You know, the Giants are a competitive team. They're probably not a division winner, but they're a competitive team night after night. And the Dodgers have proven yet again, no matter what you do to their roster, they're there. Uh, they find a way and they have they have players in their system. But you know, don't don't count out the D-backs from staying frisky in that division and, and certainly in a wild card chase at the least. Well, the Braves are getting a good look at the Arizona Diamondbacks this yeah. weekend. One of the more intriguing matchups, I think, here to start the month of June. And flashing back to about a year ago, Atlanta came in about 10, 10 and a half games under, or excuse me, out of first place in the NL East. Got walked off by the Diamondbacks. Then they went off and started a 14-game winning streak. So who's to say some club doesn't have that up their sleeve here as we turn the uh, calendar to the month of June? Wrapping up here with Anthony Castrovents of MLB.com. Uh, follow him on Twitter at Castrovents is where you can find him. He joins me on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley. Uh, you've got a book out, A Fan's Guide to Baseball Analytics. I think that really delivers some interesting insight and it's something I think that maybe a lot of fans need because there are some that love the analytics, some that don't love them at all, and some that are out there that just plain don't understand them and might if they uh, were able to get a little bit more knowledge on some of this. Uh, what led you to take a swing at putting some or all of these analytics into perspective and into one book? It was really just my own uh, journey with that where I, I come from. I come to my job from the more narrative angle and more traditional uh, just baseball fandom with no inclination or intention of, of you know, getting too nerdy with numbers. Um, but then over the course of covering baseball for the last 20 years, uh, I've seen these numbers become more and more important in how rosters are built and, and just general understanding of the game and understanding how to compare players across, you know, within a season, across eras, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I felt like there was a need out there for someone to explain these things and just kind of a fun easy to understand way as opposed to a wonky you know feel like you're reading a a medical textbook you know that kind of thing so um so i just try to keep it fun and interesting and engaging and kind of like a you know the 
a, a dummy's guide to uh, <laughs> to these advanced numbers because they're important and they're not going away. You might want to continue to cite batting average and you know home runs and RBIs and wins, but um, this is the way baseball is trended. And I think you get a better appreciation for the game as it is today when you can understand these things. Well, check out the book. It's called A Fan's Guide to Baseball Analytics. He is Anthony Castrovince of MLB.com. Make sure you're following his work over on Twitter at Castrovince. Uh, Anthony, really appreciate all the time. Enjoyed the chat with you, and hopefully we'll be able to uh, maybe reconvene a little bit later this year and see if some of the things we're talking about here as we turn the calendar to June might still be in vogue as we head into maybe a pennant race, something like that. Yeah, we'll, we'll get together after Acuna's uh, 60th stolen base, and we'll, we'll gab about that. I love it. I'll send you the invite <laughs> when we get off here. I really appreciate it, and uh, have a great weekend. All right, Grant, you too. My thanks again to Anthony Castrovince of MLB.com for joining the show. When we come back, we'll turn our attention back to the Atlanta Braves, and we'll do it next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Back to Grant McCauley for more From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. This is From the Diamond. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game as we wrap up this week's edition of the show and talk a little bit more about what's going on for the Braves this uh, past week as they wrap up the weekend and, of course, the week that comes ahead because it's going to be Braves and Mets, Mets and Braves. What a great rivalry from a year ago. Playing out a little bit differently this season. Atlanta not off to the cold start that it was last year. Sitting in first place heading into the month of June or into the month of June now as we – uh, make our way through this first week. And one of the big reasons why the Braves find themselves in first place, despite a rash of injuries to their pitching staff and uh, a lot of other injuries they've had to deal with, not just limited to their starting rotation. Well, how about Bryce Elder? I feel like we have to have this discussion every single week because it seems like every single week, every fifth day, Bryce Elder gives you something else to talk about this past week. In Oakland, though, Atlanta was walked off in a 3-2 fashion in game two of that series, and we documented it earlier, and I promise we're going to put it to rest. Uh, once we get done with this show, because there's not too many reasons to keep digging those bones up, but they lost a series to the Oakland Athletics, and it wasn't because of the starting pitching in that series. Let me uh, go ahead and make that clear. And Bryce Elder had the best start of anyone as he went seven and a third innings. Uh, just looked outstanding. He just continued to do, and yeah, it's the Oakland Athletics. I know you can, we can say that, but on the flip side of that coin, we can also look at the results of that series and say, hey, you've got to go out there and get these major league hitters out. And as of right now, there are 30 major league teams uh, results may vary for all of them, but these are major league hitters, and Bryce Elder has done this to just about every lineup he's faced. When he does run into some trouble, he seems to make in-game adjustments that get him right back on track. This is a guy that is, you know, was expected to help out at the back end of the rotation. Let me tell you something that wasn't expected out of Bryce Elder, and you may already know this because we talk about it a lot. He's leading the major leagues in ERA, sub-2 ERA as we roll into June, Bryce Elder has been more than just rotational depth. He's been more than just a filling guy. You can make an argument that he's been the Braves' most consistent starting pitcher. And I know we got Spencer Strider as well. And I don't want to take anything away from that because that is a special show. We saw it again on Saturday, even when he kind of struggled at times to kind of find his command and dial in that slider. Spencer Strider was hard to hit. He made really one mistake, a solo home run to Evan Longoria. Gave up just three hits. There were four walks. Punched out seven. It wasn't all about strikeouts in that game for Spencer Strider. But, yeah, Charlie Morton has been good. You expect him to be good. That's why they signed him to be the veteran that kind of stabilizes this rotation. But minus Max Fried and minus Kyle Wright, there were some serious questions about how the Braves were going to figure this thing out. And this is not the first time as we you know rolled through May and both of those guys went out again. Freed had the hamstring issue in April. 
Wright was behind because of the shoulder with the offseason cortisone shot that he got in January. And we don't know when Kyle Wright's going to be back. We hope it's going to be sometime this year. He's optimistic that it's going to be sometime this year. We know Max Fried is throwing. But in the absence of those guys, Bryce Elder has really turned himself into one of the most consistent starting pitchers in the National League, if not all of baseball, honestly. And it's not because he goes out there and does the thing that Spencer Strider does, which is why we can make the argument that Spencer Strider may be the best pitcher in the National League on any given start because of the stuff that he has. But Bryce Elder, as I talked about earlier in this show with Alex Fast, and if you didn't hear that interview, uh, the conversation I had, I hate to call it an interview because we just talked about baseball, and he did most of the talking. And, that, and that's why you have guests on, so that they can tell you the things that they know. And what he knows is a lot about why Bryce Elder is successful. So I'd invite you to head on over wherever you get your podcast, subscribe to From the Diamond if you hadn't already, and check out this episode. It'll be up by Monday at the very latest. I usually try to get my staff of one, which is me, to get that thing uploaded pretty quickly because these conversations, you want to have them out with uh, some sense of urgency. And the Bryce Elder conversation is a really good one. We also talked about Michael Soroka. That was my conversation with Alex Fast of Pitcher List, so make sure you check that out. Um, I'll have links and all that good stuff on social media at Grant McCauley is where you can find me there. As far as Bryce Elder's concerned this year, it has been exactly what the Braves needed. Somebody had to step up and not just cover these innings, but do so in a spectacular fashion. And solid, if not spectacular, maybe the way to put it. I don't want to oversell, but this has been an awfully good surprise for the Atlanta Braves. Putting that aside, something that has been a sight for sore eyes or just back to what we expected, the play of Ronald Acuna Jr. On Saturday against Arizona, he had a home run and a stolen base. And the stolen base is, is kind of one of my favorites because he's done this twice now. He gets into second base. He realizes that nobody's at third, so I'm going to go ahead and take the base because I can win a foot race to the bag between the third baseman who's pulled over into the shortstop position because of the shift. And that's that usually they're shifting because of Matt Olson who's batting behind him. He stole third a week or so ago on a walk to Matt Olson. I thought that was pretty great. He doubled last night, stole third base as they were dealing with Matt Olson. And oh, by the way, I believe he walked again. But you better start paying attention if you're an opposing defense to get back to your position so that your pitcher or your catcher has somebody to throw to at third base because it looks like Ronald has identified a weakness in some Major League Baseball defensive alignments. And you wouldn't think that'd be such a thing when they ban the shift this year, but it doesn't mean that they can't be out of position. It just means there are limits to what they can do, and Ronald Acuna Jr. is testing those limits. Speaking of which, I don't know that there is a limit you know, offensively all around to what this guy does, and that's why, as I talked with Anthony Castrovince of MLB.com a little bit earlier, he could be the best all-around player in baseball. I do believe he could be. And this is, again, there's a Shohei Otani category, and then there's, I think, a category for everybody else to have their great season and also be recognized because Otani's doing stuff we may never see again. I hate to put that disclaimer on it every time I talk about Ronald because it, maybe it's not fair or maybe it's really obvious and people are tired of hearing it. I don't know. I'll find out, I'm sure, if I keep doing it. It's usually the way things go. But Ronald Acuna Jr. is easily, I think right now, one of, if not the top player in at least the National League and maybe all of baseball, depending on how he's trending, how he's going. And I still will say, and he, he did it once a little bit earlier in May, he got in a little home run binge where he'll hit one in three, four, or five consecutive games. I think we'll see some multi-home run games. I mean, he is scalding the baseball right now. 464-foot home run last night. And Mark Bowman of MOB.com had a really interesting stat off of that, that and the Braves are doing this about as well or better than anybody else, and that is hitting tape measure home runs, and I like those. I think those are fun. 464 feet last night in Arizona. That's his third 460-plus foot homer this year. No other player has more than one this season. Ronald Lacuna Jr. is that guy. 
He's got five home runs, 450 feet or longer. Austin Riley, the only other player who has at least three heading into Sunday. So pretty incredible stuff when you think about what the Braves offense is capable of. And at the top of that, the figurehead, uh, the straw that stirs the drink, all uh, respect to Reggie Jackson, who we heard from earlier on the show too, it's Ron Lacuna Jr. He's the guy that gets this whole thing started. Uh, a couple of other good things, I think, uh, on offense. There are some positive signs that we're seeing. Eddie Rosario's having a great series in Arizona, and I think he has started to pick up some steam as the season has gone along and really given the Braves the kind of production they were hoping to have from him. Multi-home run game on Friday, two more hits on Saturday, trending in the right direction. But Michael Harris the second is somebody we want to see get himself fully on track this year, and there's some reasons why he hasn't. A three-and-a-half-week stay on the injured list with a bad back, well, that's one big reason. It, that interrupted his season, but now he's been back for a little while, but he had that knee thing. He had to play, through the, play with a brace on for a while. But when he started working on the last homestand with Braves hitting coaches, and Chipper Jones was even involved with this, about just the overall approach of using the opposite field a little bit more, thinking to the left field side, back up the middle to the left, is what he's doing now. We saw that four extremely hard-hit balls in Saturday's game. He was robbed of a, at least a double uh, on a great play uh, by Corbin Carroll in center field, scalded another one into a double play, and uh, finally got, his, got himself a base hit in his final at-bat. But this is a kid that it's, he's 22 years old. I think we forget that sometimes. He had very limited struggles in 2022. I mean, that's how you win a rookie of the year. You hit nearly 300. You're a 2020-type player. I think he was what, one home run off of that. And then you play the gold glove defense that he does. Michael Harris is second. I think it's going to be fine. Uh, anybody that is kind of looking at this as wanting to make a, a rash, you know, quick snap judgment of, oh, well, we need to send him down to the minors and let him get it straight there. You don't always have to send somebody to the minors for them to figure it out. And Michael Harris II, I don't think there's any scenario in which you want to send him to the minors. It doesn't involve rehab assignment, and that's not a scenario we want to be talking about anytime soon because it would mean that you'd be missing Michael Harris II for another significant amount of time. But uh, those are a couple other uh, observations I guess I have going through the weekend. I know Michael's been talked about quite a bit. I think he's got plenty of better days ahead of him. Sometimes you just go through some of these valleys so that you can appreciate when you get back to the top of the mountain again. I think he's going to get there. Uh, we've talked about Atlanta's bullpen quite a bit this year. It's, been, uh, it's always the focus. I don't care what team it is. I don't care what the team's record is. There's always going to be those nights where the bullpen comes in and a lead goes away. Or the bullpen comes in in a close game and it is no longer a close game. Whatever the case. It, it's going to happen sometimes. It is not unique to the Atlanta Braves. I went through all of the bullpens across baseball and found some really fascinating stuff uh, just based on overall values and how some of these teams are having to deal with the, the usage of bullpens now. And, and this is a longer conversation maybe for another time. In the absence of the complete game, which is really no longer a thing in baseball. You just, the bullpen doesn't get a night off, typically. I mean, some guys, you do, maybe one. You get the scheduled off day, but the way that you have to juggle different relievers and their availability, have they pitched three straight days? Have they pitched in three out of four? Have they pitched in four out of five? I mean, some of these guys, you know, the, the everyday Eddie Guardados of this generation, and if you got that reference, congratulations. But the Braves bullpen this year is 14th in Major League Baseball with an ERA just under four. It's 3.96. So they're middle of the pack. Middle of the pack in opponents batting average 17th at 241. 22nd, this surprised me, 22nd in innings pitched, 204 and two-thirds. Now, there's not a lot of separation in some cases between 22nd and 18th or 17th and 13th. You know, there's, it's pretty close. 11th in Ks per nine, 9.63. Just 22nd in batters faced, hence the 22nd in innings pitched. So they really haven't – they've worked a lot this year, and I feel like the Braves' bullpen is always busy. I feel like they're always in the game. I feel like somebody's always throwing. 
But maybe uh, other teams are having to throw a little bit more than are the Braves. Surprise me. As far as the top bullpens in Major League Baseball, according to Fangraphs and wins above replacement, the Braves are eighth. There have been some bad nights. I will gladly grant you that. There have been some frustrating nights, and they'd be the first ones to tell you that. There have also been some nights where you've you've had a lot of guys working kind of out of position or or in different leverage situations or having to pick up the slack, and that's the job. That's a team sport the way that they have. But eighth in Major League Baseball and Fangraphs wins above replacement. If you had just polled me to say, who's the best bullpen in baseball? I would not have gotten Baltimore Orioles, then Seattle Mariners, then the Cincinnati Reds, Colorado Rockies, before you find the Houston Astros and the Padres and the New York Yankees. That it would have surprised me to see that quartet of teams. Baltimore, Seattle, Cincinnati, Colorado at the top of the heap as far as bullpens are concerned. But the Braves bullpen, I think a lot of stress has been put on them by the offensive woes and lulls that have been going on lately. Brian Snitker talked a little bit about going through some of the highs and lows of a season and what the Braves are trying to do right now as they wrap up this road trip and get headed home and look to get things going in the right direction. You know what? It's part of it. We've been through it every year that I've been here. And you know what? You're just, there's spots like this. I think every year I have the third base coach here. Okay, how good, whatever, what kind of team we had. I mean, it was just, you have to get through the situations like that. You know, you just keep working, understand it's a long season. We got four months of baseball left. We're not going to win the division this week or next. So, I mean, we just got to keep, you know, grinding through the whole thing. People may hate hearing it in terms of the day-to-day, but I think it is one of the things that separates the Braves from a lot of other clubs, able to keep them in the position to be as resilient as they are. But you want to see this offense get going. It'll help out the bullpen. But getting the starting rotation going and healthy, the, the things that Price Elder's done, Jared Schuster stepping in and the comeback of Michael Soroka to go along with Spencer Strider and Charlie Morton, that's going to help the bullpen as much as anything will. But you got to score more runs than the other guys. That's the big thing in the game of baseball. That'll wrap things up on this edition of From the Diamond. I appreciate, as always, the guests on this show, Alex Fast of Pitcher List. Appreciate his time. Hope you'll check out that conversation on the podcast, as well as Anthony Castrovince of MLB.com. He joined the show today as well. Thanks to my producer, Garrett Chapman, and thank you to all of you listening out there for making From the Diamond part of your baseball, I guess, podcast and show regimen. We appreciate it. We'll be back with you again next Sunday right here with From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.